Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. I'm going to dedicate this sermon to Rankin and Kimber, Rankin and Kimber, and everyone here out there that are in the same boat. Shall we get started? I'm preaching from when everything's on fire. Comes out next week. I still haven't seen one, but they say it's in the, it's in the warehouse and it's on its way. So I'm pretty excited. I'm going to preach from chapter four this morning. The end is the beginning. John chapter 20, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. First, I want to talk about some of my story. And then I want to talk about Mary Magdalene's story. And then I want to talk about your story. The pivotal event in my life came when I was quite young, just a teenager, at the precarious age of 15, when I was heading into some destructive roads. Jesus Christ captured my heart with a holy fascination. I can relate the events of my sudden and surprising spiritual awakening, but all these years later, I still don't understand exactly why it happened. At a significant crossroads early in life, why was the course of my life suddenly changed by an encounter with Jesus Christ? I don't know. It remains a mystery of how that unfolded like it did. What I do know is that at the center of my life is not a religion, Not a book, not a philosophy, not a theology, but a person. The crucified and risen Jesus Christ. My lifelong journey with Jesus began with a revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. And it was encased within a mystical experience. But it was inevitable and necessary that... I would eventually build a theological house around the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. We all do this. We all have a theological house. Our theological house is not Jesus, but the space that Jesus inhabits in our thought and speech. Our, you can think of it this way. Our theological house is the palace in the mind for Christ the King. Our theological house can be helpful and enhancing and worthy of the King, or it can be inadequate, possibly injurious, and unworthy of the King. Around age 40, and it's coming into, you know, really coming into midlife, 
Around age 40, I began to realize how inadequate my theological house really was. It was too small, too impoverished, too much informed in the style of American consumerism, sectarian certitude, modern individualism, religious nationalism, those things. Plus, there were theories of eschatology and atonement and final judgment that clashed with the beauty of Christ. I never doubted Jesus, but I began to doubt and question the theological house I'd built around Jesus. I wasn't doubting Jesus, I just suddenly began to be aware that Jesus deserved a better Christianity than I knew. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But your theological house probably ought not to be. You see. We can make that mistake. We can confuse, and this is a terrible mistake, but people make it. They confuse the palace in the mind that is the theological house for the king himself. Well, in November of 2003, 18 years ago, doesn't seem that long ago, does it, Perizon? Life's flying by. November 2003, 18 years ago, I reached a point where I said, I can't live in this house anymore. Well, I didn't say that because I wasn't using that metaphor. What I said was, something's got to change. And I didn't know what it was exactly. I didn't know how to go about it. But I knew that something had to happen. I wanted Jesus, but my dilapidated theological house had become almost uninhabitable. I was too embarrassed by my theological house to invite company over. <laughs> this is true. I wasn't ashamed of Jesus. I wasn't ashamed of the gospel. I was ashamed of the thin and ugly and compromised and unworthy theology that had grown up around Jesus over the years. So, in 2004, I began a massive remodel renovation of my theological house. Whew, it was not easy. Worth it, but not easy. How many of you know that remodeling your house while you're living in it is hard to do? And in my case, I was remodeling my house while living in it while all the neighbors came around here just to stare to see what I was doing. It was a very public thing. And they were quick to offer their opinions. Remodeling your house while you're still living in it is messy and it's complicated. And for me, it was difficult and costly but worth it, absolutely worth it. Now, when I talk about remodeling a theological house, understand we're not talking about a one-room bungalow. Your theological house is more like a sprawling mansion with dozens of rooms. These are all of the ways you think about God and you have all kinds of rooms. I didn't have to start over entirely. I didn't do that. There were rooms that were Largely untouched. The room of my Christology. 
I didn't, I didn't change it. I, I brought in a nice Persian rug and began to visit it more, but, <laughs> but I didn't have to do much to it. On the other hand, I had a whole wing called eschatology. This is, you know, the study of the end. What we would have called in those days Bible prophecy. That wing of my theological house, uh, we did bring in the sledgehammers. And I took it down to, not just down to the studs, that went down to the foundation. Because it was wrong. I had inherited it. It had been given to me. But it was wrong, and so that was uh, raised right down to the foundation. That's where the term theological deconstruction might be apropos, at least in my own story. But to what degree, and I never used the term at that time, because it didn't really seem to capture what I was saying, or doing, or feeling, or experiencing, but if you want to call it theological destruction. In my case, it never was an act of anger or cynicism. It was always just a quest to discover the truth and beauty of Christ. Now, you know, if you're doing a, a massive remodel like that, you need a contractor. And my contractor should be your contractor. I recommend this contractor, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit really helped me in this renovation. The Holy Spirit led me to the right books. That was so important. The right friends, equally important. And the right prayers, absolutely important. But I had to put everything in escrow and trust the Holy Spirit. I had to let the Holy Spirit be in charge. I was being born again, again, and the end was the beginning. Now that's some of my story, but Mary Magdalene has a similar story. Mary Magdalene was a woman of means who came from the prosperous fishing village of Magdala on the Sea of Galilee. She was one of the female patrons of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus had left his carpentry work in Nazareth and most of his disciples had been fishermen. One of them was a tax collector and they all left that. But you still got to eat. Still got to be supported. And they were supported by a cadre of wealthy female patrons. One of them, one of these patrons was... Uh, was Joanna, the wife of Cusa, who was the business manager for King Herod. And so that's the kind of circles that Mary Magdalene is moving in. You shouldn't think of her as, as a simple peasant. She is a woman of means that has high connections with important people. And by the way, she absolutely was not a prostitute. That has got into the Christian imagination, we can't seem to quite get it out. And it, it just happened because in 597, Pope Gregory the Great preached a sermon where he got the unnamed sinner in Luke 7 confused with Mary Magdalene. And somehow, it's just that this has never gotten out of our mind. She wasn't a prostitute. And even though in the iconography, she's almost always presented as young, that probably wasn't the case. 
She was probably an older woman owning some kind of business, maybe a widow, that had a lot of money and seven demons, which seems about average. (laughs) We all have our issues. But she encountered Jesus and Jesus set her free. Jesus brought her into liberation, set her free from these things that were ruining her life. And she became Mary Magdalene, not Peter, not James, not John. Mary Magdalene became Jesus' most faithful follower. She's always there and paying the bills. She follows him through Galilee. She follows him to Jerusalem. She follows him to the cross when all the disciples had fled. She stays with Jesus all the way to the end. But Mary was not prepared for that awful end. She had come to believe that he was the Messiah, the King, the Savior, the Liberator, the one that would bring God's newness into the world. And it can't end like this. But it did. It ends with the death of Jesus on a cross and she's there. And she's there when he's put in the tomb. And on the first day of the week, she comes back one more time with spices for a final act of devotion. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, it was still dark, people. It was still dark. Mary Magdalene came, because she always does. But it's to the tomb, it's to the end. The dawn had not yet come, and Mary was still in the dark night of a faith deconstruction so severe that everything seemed to be lost. In the darkness of her despair, Mary comes as a mourner to the tomb of Jesus, the place of the final dissolution of the faith she had held. But what Mary supposed was the end was in fact a new beginning. A dark night of deconstruction can be followed by a new dawn of renewed faith. So she comes because it's the end. This is going to be her last goodbye. I mean, she still loves Jesus, but it's the end. The end. And she comes with her spices for a final goodbye at the end. She gets there. It's still dark. And the stone is rolled away. This is a mystery. A bit alarming. She looks in. There's nobody. She reports what she's fine. There's disciples that come. They look around. Yeah, the tomb's empty. The body's gone. They all leave. But Mary's the one that just doesn't leave. She's always there. She stays. She's right there. And as she's looking, a question comes to her. Woman, why are you weeping? And she gives the answer. They've taken away my Lord. They've taken away my Lord. I started started listening to this podcast and they took away my Lord. 
They've taken away my Lord. And then she turns around and there's the gardener. Well, he may have done it. Maybe he didn't want this body in this garden. And there's the gardener. And the gardener says to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where he is. And the gardener says, Mary. Rabboni. And she sees Jesus. And she holds on to him. She clings to Jesus. When Mary finally recognized Jesus, Jesus eventually had to say to her, don't cling to me. Mary had to stop clinging to what she thought she knew about Jesus in order to know him in his fullness. A fullness that now fills the cosmos. Understand? She, she thinks she's come to the end. She's come all the way to the end, and the end is the beginning. She, she thought it was the end. It was just the end of the beginning. And now there's a new beginning that is without end. To initially meet and begin with Jesus is a wonderful thing. It's great to get saved. For Mary Magdalene, it meant being set free from seven demons. That's good. But even Mary Magdalene could not assume that her first understanding of Jesus captured the fullness of who Jesus is. The, the Jesus Mary Magdalene encountered in the garden far transcended her initial understanding of the Jesus she first knew in Galilee. But in between being delivered from seven demons and meeting the risen Christ in the guise of a gardener was a dark night where all seemed lost. The beauty of Mary Magdalene's story is that a dark night was only the antecedent to a new dawn where a bitter end became a new beginning. That's Mary Magdalene's story. Now your story. Like me, like Mary Magdalene, you may, I'm not saying you will, but I've been a pastor for almost 40 years. And I've seen a lot. You may reach a place in your faith that feels like a dead end. And you feel like, well, is this it? Is it over? Have I reached the end? Well, if you reach a point in your journey with Jesus where what is fashionably called these days deconstruction is inevitable, please know that many have walked and are walking this same road and you're not alone. I hear from these people all the time. It may feel like the end, but the end is the beginning. Now, how does it happen? Well, extraneous doctrines, wrong ideas about God, wrong attitude toward culture, can get attached to your faith in Jesus. This often occurs in childhood or early in your conversion. 
I mean, I encountered Jesus when I was 15, November 9th, 1974. I mean, I really did. But it was in a particular context. And so I'm in a context where along with encountering Jesus, I'm also given some baggage. It was just, it's just how, how the deal went down. I'm meeting Jesus, that's for real. But then I got some baggage that was given to me. Including this whole timeline of eschatology and dispensationalism. That's how I picked up that, all that crazy stuff. It, it just was handed to me as extraneous baggage when I came to Jesus. And these things happened. Now, you can carry those bags for a long time. I'm talking about the baggage of doctrines that are wrong and, and ideas and attitudes that are just not really in line with who Christ is. You can carry those for a long time and they don't cause any problem. Some people will carry them for a lifetime and never really be troubled by it. So be it. I'm not here to cause anybody trouble, but I know that people get in trouble and that's when I want to help. So you, you come to Jesus, but you also picked up some things that were not really good. They weren't really the best. They really weren't faithful. But it just came with the context that you came to Jesus in. And maybe you carry it for a long time and there's no problem. And then something happens. And something triggers it. It could be anything. I mean, I've talked to people here. Here. It could be anything, a, a visit to Auschwitz that just brings the problem of evil just into such clear focus that you can't turn away. You find out the universe isn't 6,000 years old and somehow you were betting it was. You, you find one of those ugly, ugly chick tracks, you know, those gospel tracks by J.T. Chick. You look at the thing, you thumb a few pages, you go, is this what I believe? Because this is hideous. One day you're reading in your New Testament and you come across a verse that says women should keep silent in the church. And you go, dang it, I don't know that I agree with that. Am I allowed to disagree? And then there's a crisis. Suddenly you're thrown into a crisis of faith. What should you do? Well, I've been through the disorienting experience of a theological deconstruction renovation. I prefer just to call it water to wine. And I've also helped other people pass through the dark night of crisis and into the sun-drenched lands of a reborn faith. And I have some things to say. Let me give you, real quick, five bits of hard-won advice. Number one, don't be afraid and don't be ashamed. Reacting with panicked fear to rising doubts is the exact opposite of faith. There is no way to grow and progress in faith without passing through some seasons of doubt. There's no way. If doubt is impossible, it's not faith. When you are operating in faith, you are in a realm where doubt is inherently a possibility. Get rid of the idea that certitude equals faith. 
Now, certitude is a cheap substitute for faith. So in my 40s, I began to doubt some things. You know, I mean, I have all these sermons, and then some of them I began to doubt. I don't know if I, I, I preach that. I don't know if I'm going to preach that again. I don't know if I believe that. And that can be disturbing because within my case, it also added, you know, I had the added stress and pressure of this is my vocation. This is what I do. And I began to doubt some things. And that's disconcerting. But it turned out they were good doubts. I was doubting what should be doubted. It turns out that sometimes, and this is often the case, you can doubt your way into a better faith. You can doubt your way into a stronger faith. You can doubt your way into a more beautiful faith. You can doubt your way from a watery faith to a faith turned to wine. Number two, keep in mind that your theological house isn't Jesus. When I went through some theological deconstruction, again, not my preferred term, but I'll use it because it's in vogue. When I went through some theological deconstruction, I never feared losing Jesus. Now, I know that isn't everybody's experience, but that was my experience. In fact, I knew that what was happening was I was finding Jesus. I wasn't losing Jesus, I was finding Jesus, but it turns out that Jesus was a little bit different than what I had assumed. So I was losing something, I guess. I was losing some misguided ideas about Jesus. And finding Jesus in more truth. What I feared, there was fear. And I'll just, be, I'll just stand here and tell you the truth. What I feared was being rejected by those who misunderstood and misinterpreted me. And that fear came to pass. But I survived it. You know, sometimes that which you fear most comes upon you and you find out you can endure it. You can make it. That's what happened to me anyway. It's those who confuse their theological house with Jesus who risk losing Jesus. I mean, if you tie everything too tight, then you can lose everything. Don't cling too tightly to one particular idea about Jesus, but don't leave either. Your theology needs to be a little bit flexible. If your theology is, is, is not flexible, if your theology is too hard, you might break. There needs to be some give in your theology. And say, I'm not going to just doggedly cling to this idea I had of Jesus when I first met him 40 years ago, but I'm not leaving either. I'm going to stay here until Jesus calls my name and says, Brian. And I say, Rabboni. Here's a prayer to pray for those that are going through theological deconstruction. Pray this prayer. Jesus, I believe in you, even if I don't know exactly what that means or what that's going to look like on the other side of this. Jesus, I've entrusted everything to the Holy Spirit, put it in escrow. I'm not sure what this is going to look like. Only I, the only thing I know is I believe in you, Jesus. You keep Jesus right there. You stay right there with Jesus. Number three, beware of the pendulum. Try to find the sweet spot. 
you probably don't need to take a wrecking ball to the whole of your theological house. In other words, you don't need to take the wrecking ball to all of Christian faith. So you're reading the New Testament. Women keep silence. I don't believe that I'm done being a Christian. That's a little radical. I think we can help you out here a little bit. Um, Rejecting everything you inherited from your theological tradition is probably not wise. And try to give some mercy to those who in good faith gave you some bad theology. Unless you grew up in a manipulative, abusive cult, which most of you didn't. Some of you did, but most of you didn't. Unless you grew up in a manipulative, abusive cult, the wrong things you received were probably given in good faith. And they were just passing along what had been passed along to them. And sometimes it takes a while to break out of that. I mean, they may have given you a wrong eschatology. That was my experience. Or some awful ideas about hell. But they also told you about a Jesus who loves sinners and forgives everyone. Number four, open up to the whole body of Christ. The kind of theology most in need of deconstruction is often the product of isolated sectarian camps. The worst theology comes from narrow little camps that are sectarian and isolated. Whatever it is you're struggling with, you know, you're, you believe in Jesus, but there's all these other things. I don't know about, I don't, I don't know if I agree. I don't know what I think about, I don't know. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. I promise you, the church has not been silent on this. I promise you, you're not the first or the millionth person to deal with this. Millions have already struggled with the same issue and the church has been addressing it. But I say the church, I mean the whole church. Maybe not in your isolated, narrow sectarian camp. But if you open up to the whole body of Christ, I'll make it simple. What you're struggling with, there's probably a dozen books that have been written on it that are really good. Come ask me. I'll tell you what the books are. One of them might be one of mine. Who knows? We'll see. You say, this is what I'm struggling with, Pastor. Come up to me afterwards. I'm struggling with this issue. What do you recommend? We can help you. And I've learned that if you want the best theology, you need the whole body of Christ. That's a good line right there. If you want the best theology, you need the whole body of Christ. If you want the best theology in the Christian faith, you're not going to find it in just one expression. You're going to have to draw upon the whole. And so today is Reformation Day. You know, commemorating 1517, Martin Luther, 95 Theses, Wittenberg Door. On Reformation Day, I just want to say, I need the whole body of Christ. I need it all. I need some orthodox theology and some orthodox mystery. And I need some Catholic beauty and Catholic stability and Catholic tradition because there's no accounting for how we got here without that. But I also need some 
Anglican liturgy. And I need some Protestant audacity. I mean, say what you will about Luther. He was audacious. Oh yeah, well, I got 95 things I'd like to think about it. That was the first post that went viral right there. It was, I need some of that audacity. But I also need some Anabaptist peacemaking. The more radical reformation. I mean, the problem was the Protestants reformed some of the corruption that was endemic in the medieval church, but they kept a lot of stuff that still needs to be reformed. They still kept the vision of being a state-sponsored imperial church. So you need those radical reformers, the Anabaptists with their peacemaking tradition. I need evangelical energy. Say what you will about evangelicals. They got energy. I need evangelical energy and I need Pentecostal experience. So I want the whole body. Open up to the whole body of Christ. And number five, be patient. A new dawn will come. Be patient. You know, you, you get troubled. You, you say, I think, I think I'm changing some of, the, some of the ways I think about God. And you get alarmed. Be patient. No matter what you've been told, the remodel of your theological house is going to take longer than two weeks. No matter what you've been told, it's going to take longer than two weeks. In my case, it took years. One more thing. When you can't pray, at least say your prayers. When you can't pray, at least say your prayers. Liturgy can be a lifeline to lead you out of a dark cave where you've gotten terribly confused. I had that dream during this time, way back. I had dreamed I was in a cave and I was lost and I couldn't find my way out. And then I found a rope and I just threw the darkness. I just followed it and it led me out into the sunlight. And I interpreted that dream as it was at that time that I was beginning to find the prayers and beginning to pray with what eventually became my morning liturgy of prayer. And it was a, I, did, I don't know how that rope got there. I didn't put it there. Somebody that had gone before me put it there. They said, there might be somebody in this cave, get lost. And they hold on to this. They can, they can make their way out. When you can't pray, at least say your prayers. And if you don't have the prayers, well, that's what prayer school is for. We'll give you the prayers. It's not the theological house that really matters. In the end, all that matters is Jesus. Jesus is the voice that calls you. And Jesus is the love that draws you. You can trust that voice and you can trust that love. T.S. Eliot said it like this. With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Amen. Stand up with me. Let's confess our faith. Hold on to this lifeline. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join me in our prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those that want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.